I was supposed to meet one of my contacts for lunch at a restaurant just near the spot where Rafiq Hariri was assassinated. But I instead was meeting with Amin Jamal, the former Lebanese president. And Amin Jamal was going on and on and on. And I kept looking at my watch. That's when the explosion happened. I knew immediately that it was a car bomb. And it was an enormous shock for all of us. From the Oslo Forum, welcome to the Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. Today, I'm joined by Ambassador Jeffrey Feldman, former Undersecretary General for Political Affairs at the United Nations in New York, effectively the person to whom the top UN mediators around the world reported for six years. Prior to that, he served for 26 years as a US Foreign Service officer, including a posting as ambassador to Lebanon, and finally in Washington as Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs. Jeff Feltman, welcome to the Mediator Studio. Adam, thank you very much for the invitation. It's great to have you with us. Let's start with your undergraduate days in the US. You grew up in Ohio and studied fine art. So what was your path into diplomacy? Oh, Adam. I, I will reveal my complete lack of sophistication and understanding of international relations with that question. But, I, but as you say, I grew up in sort of the rural Midwest, the Ohio-Indiana border, very small town, and went to school at a sort of an undistinguished state university, not that far away, Ball State University, Muncie, Indiana. And I was an art major, as you mentioned. And I somehow ended up spending part of that time um, at the Tate Gallery in London. I'd never lived in a city before. I'd never spent time overseas before. London was just a completely different world for me. And so I thought, how in the world can I keep experiencing this international life and combine it with my art, which I then was quite passionate about. And I thought, well, I'll become a cultural attaché. I had no idea what a cultural attaché was. It was before the days of Google. So I was going to the library to look up and realize cultural attaché is sort of a U.S. diplomat, a U.S. Foreign Service officer, a subset of U.S. Foreign Service officers. So I thought, fine, that way I can live overseas, have this international experience, still be involved in arts and culture. This is great, but how do you get in? So I took the foreign service exam and not surprisingly as an art major from, a, from Ball State University, I failed. So then I thought, well, now what am I gonna do? And decided I should be a little bit more serious about this and ended up applying to graduate schools in international affairs thinking if I, I need to get a better background in what international affairs what this really means, what, what is diplomacy? So I spent a couple of years at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts. I graduated from Fletcher, took the foreign service exam and failed again. So two strikes. Um, and then I, was, I had student debts, I had this education, what was I gonna do? I ended up working in New York City for a few years for a couple of nonprofits dealing with international affairs, took the foreign service exam again after a few years in New York, and this time I passed. Anyway, that's a rather long story of how I got into it. And by this point, I was no longer interested in being in cultural affairs and the art had been left behind just as a hobby. And I was much more interested in sort of the political and economic promotion of U.S. interests overseas and service to the U.S. government in embassies overseas by this point. And that's exactly what you went on to do, because in 2004, President George Bush sends you to Lebanon as U.S. ambassador. And a few months after you arrive, former Prime Minister Rafi Hariri is killed in a massive car bomb. He was a leading figure in the anti-Syrian opposition, and his assassination sparks massive demonstrations on the streets. 
the same time, you have a number of Western leaders also pushing for an end to Syria's decades-long occupation of Lebanon, which they think will curb the influences of Iran and its ally Hezbollah. Take me back to the moment when you learned of Rafi Hariri's assassination. I was supposed to meet one of my contacts for lunch at a restaurant just near the spot where Rafi Hariri was assassinated. Um, but I instead was meeting with Amin Jamal, the former Lebanese president. And Amin Jamal, who likes to talk, was going on and on and on. And I kept looking at my watch thinking, I need to be at this restaurant. I have a lunch date right now with an important political contact. And as I was leaving Amin Jamal's house, which is in the hills above Beirut, to go down to this restaurant, you know, sending text messages that I'm, I'm sorry I'm late, I'm coming, that's when the explosion happened. I knew immediately that it was a car bomb for a very weird reason. I had served in Jerusalem in the Second Intifada at the U.S. Consulate General, the U.S. representation to the Palestinians at the time. And one of the skills that we acquired was to be able to distinguish between construction blasts. So when I heard this outside of Mean Jamal's house as I'm getting into my motorcade, I knew immediately that it was a car bomb and not some kind of construction. And then you know, within, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes, it was clear that it was the motorcade that was taking the Fikiriri from the Parliament Square back to his residence after a parliamentary session. And it was an enormous shock for all of us. I had seen Rafiq Hariri two days earlier. It was the last time I saw him alive. And at the time, he was extremely confident. Said, Jeff, we've all been talking about which election law Lebanon needs to have in order to try to help reduce the influence of the, the Syrians, of the politicians that were beholden to Syria. And let me tell you, I've done the math. Jeff, and whatever election law we have, we're going to be able to have a sufficient parliamentary strength in these upcoming elections to be able to block whatever the pro-Syrian block in the parliament wants, wants to do. And of course, he was right, but he was right in death. You can't imagine a more dramatic situation for you to be thrust into as ambassador, both the the tragic events of, of his assassination, uh, but also the protests uh, which followed, you know, pushing for an end to the Syrian occupation. And of course, you know, this was not a situation where the US was neutral. You know, Syria leaving was seen as a good thing for the US, as was weakening Hezbollah. Do you think that aligning yourself to one side of the political divide was problematic in any way? that it could have exacerbated the country's polarization, you know, made it less stable, actually. And let me go back, if, if I may, to the background of this. The Iraq War, the U.S. invasion of Iraq. There was a rift between Jacques Chirac and George W. Bush over the Iraq War. And Jacques Chirac, by spring, summer 2004, was looking for ways to warm up that relationship again. And Jacques Chirac, I think very cleverly, figured out that Lebanon was the way to defrost the relationship. And so Jacques Chirac pitched George W. Bush, can't we work together on trying to push back against the Syrians in Lebanon? And George W. Bush, of course, very much liked that. The Syrians were seen as trying to undercut the, you know, the Bush policies toward Iraq. So starting in summer 2004, which is the same time I arrived in Lebanon, the U.S. sort of acceptance of the Pax Syriana that had been in place since the end of the Lebanese Civil War was no longer 
U.S. policy. But there wasn't that much happening on the ground that really made a difference. And then was the Rafiq Hariri assassination and those and the sudden outpouring of demonstrations in Lebanon. A large number of the Lebanese started calling for the withdrawal of the Syrian troops. In the court of popular opinion, Syria was guilty of killing Rafiq Hariri. I believe it was this combination of the mass uprisings on the ground and the fact that there was an international push outside Lebanon moving in the same direction that gave the Syrians no choice but to leave. The lesson I took out of this was you need to have a combination of internal momentum and external support to really make a difference. That had the Lebanese gone out in force and the international community was looking elsewhere, those Lebanese would have been crushed. But I frankly did not see the previous U.S. policy of supporting a Pax Syriana of being in U.S. interest. I was a representative of the U.S. government. I did not have to calculate what my political prospects were in terms of elective office in Lebanon. And during the Pax Syriana, you saw Hezbollah deep in its roots in Lebanon. So yes, I was a very partisan figure. I remembered in 2006, when Hezbollah was besieging the Grand Sarai, the seat of the government in Lebanon, where the prime minister, Fuad Senora, symbol of anti-Syrian forces at the time, where, where his offices were. I went in to see Fuad Senora you know, regularly. And in one of the meetings, you could hear the Hezbollah chants outside his office, chanting Feltman government, Feltman government. They were trying to belittle, discredit Fuad Senora by saying that he was basically a creation of the United States. He turned to me and he said, Jeff, they say it's your government. Take it. So yes, I was considered a partisan figure, but I was representing U.S. interests and U.S. policy at the time. Let's talk about your transition from an American diplomat to a U.N. official. You leave Lebanon in 2008 and continue to work on the Middle East in a senior post in the State Department. And in 2012, you go to the U.N. headquarters in New York and become Undersecretary General in charge of the Department of Political Affairs, DPA, as it was called then. You're the most senior American in the UN system, and you have something of a baptism by fire, because within a few weeks, you find yourself, the American who is central to helping to push out Syria from Lebanon, at a meeting in Tehran with a key Syrian ally, none other than the supreme leader of Iran, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. That must have been surreal. It was surreal. I would say in my entire professional career, it was probably the most surreal moment that I had to have been sitting in NSC meetings discussing how do we confront the challenges that Iran posed for us in the region and beyond. And then within eight weeks, sitting in the Supreme Leader's inner office. You know, I was the plus one with Ban Ki-moon, then, sec- then Secretary General. But what struck me in that meeting is I sat there thinking about the, the many gaps in knowledge that we in the United States had about Iran. Our attempts to try to analyze the motivations behind the Supreme Leader, behind others in Iran, without the benefit of a local presence of a long-term diplomatic relations that we would have with other countries. We had gaps in our knowledge without question, and we tried our best to use various means to fill them. So I sat there thinking about our imperfect understanding of, of Iran listening to a several-hour diatribe from the Supreme Leader of of Iran, who I think had no idea who I was. You know, it's just Ban Ki-moon's aide. He was talking to Ban Ki-moon. His whole diatribe was not about the United Nations 
or what he thought the United Nations should be doing. It was about the United States. And I thought to myself, whatever gaps of knowledge we had, they're not nearly as big of the gaps in knowledge that he has about the United States. He was describing a country that was far, far different than the country for which I had served and which I had been raised. I left the meeting quite frightened because I thought if his understanding is so poor of the United States, what decisions might he take? What miscalculations might he make about you know, US intentions? Jeff, you know, it's an interesting anecdote because it also points to the fact that you have these incredibly important political relationships between adversaries where there's deep gaps and kind of mutual understanding and, and the normal channels of dialogue through which an understanding would be built aren't really there. And I'd like to ask you about your trip to another country where arguably those channels had also broken down, and that's the North Korea or the DPRK in December 2017. Because even a seasoned diplomat like you must have felt that this was a high stakes trip as tensions with the US, sort of drumbeat of war, uh, were very high. How concerned were you about the threat of, of an accidental war? And what did you think the UN's role was? I said that the, the meeting with Khamenei was the most surreal meeting I ever had. But the most important diplomatic mission I undertook in my 30-some year diplomatic career, both U.S. and U.N., was that December 2017 trip to North Korea. You remember that fall. There was the sixth nuclear test in September 2017. There was the ICBM launch that showed that the North Koreans could reach all corners of the United States in November. There was the rhetoric at the U.N. General Assembly you know, that September where President Trump talked about Little Rocket Man and the, and the button and the foreign minister of, of North Korea, Ri Young-ho, sort of responded in kind. It was a very, very frightening time. It felt as though Washington and Pyongyang were on an almost irreversible trajectory toward war, devastating war. So in the middle of all this tension, where the Security Council is passing resolutions, increasing the pressure on Pyongyang, I'm suddenly being invited to North Korea. This was the most critical, urgent peace and security matter in the world at the time. So on the one hand, of course, the, the irreducible purpose of the United Nations is to prevent succeeding generations from the scourge of war. So we had a responsibility to try to help de-escalate the tensions. On the other hand, I could so easily have been instrumentalized. The first political trip of the United Nations in nearly eight years to Pyongyang could have been used to demonstrate that there was some sort of normalcy to what Pyongyang was doing in defying Security Council resolutions. So this was a real gamble. Could we do something useful or not? So I talked to the Secretary General, his first year in, in office, it was Antonio Guterres. What do I do with this invitation? Here are the risks, but here's the sort of imperative that we have to try to do something given the risks of war. Antonio Guterres asked me to check with the other six parties um, and the Russians and the Chinese and the and the Republic of Korea, Seoul, they were all very supportive of me accepting this. Tokyo and Washington was opposed. I thought it was important to go despite the risks. Well, Washington and Tokyo both said, no way. The only thing that works right now is pressure. The only potential that might work is pressure and you would be relieving the pressure if you went to Pyongyang, so no way. Then in October, October 21st, I think it was, Antonio Guterres had a meeting with President Trump in the White House. And again, the tensions were so high that of course, the DPRK's nuclear program was high on the agenda between President Trump and Secretary General Guterres. And President Trump said, Jeff should go. 
So suddenly, the, you know, the, the head of state of the United States is overriding the negative answer I had gotten from the people who work for him. That left Japan. Once we had the green light from President Trump to go, we worked out the way that Tokyo could also get to yes. Then, of course, we, we worked out with the DPRK, the modalities of the trip. Initially, the DPRK wanted me to do things like lay flowers on the statue, but they very quickly understood that if I was discredited because of the choreography of the trip, then the trip doesn't serve any purpose for them either. Just before leaving was when that ICBM launch happened. So I had to then go back and ask the six-party talk people again, should I proceed? Should I still go, given the fact that we've just seen another defiance by the DPRK of the Security Council's repeated resolutions? And at this point, they all said, go, go, go. You know, we don't know if, you'll have any, if, if this will have any impact or not, but you should go. And the meetings were, were tough. The North Koreans had um, a lot of grievances about the United Nations that they wanted to table. But our message basically was, you need to find a way to de-escalate the tensions. You need to find a way to reopen the channels. You need to find a way to prevent an accidental war. I presented the foreign minister, Ri Yong-ho, with a copy of that book about World War II written by the British historian, The Sleepwalkers. It said, this is what you risk. You risk sleepwalking into war. You have, there's no military-to-military -military communications across the heavily fortified DMZ. There's no channel for talking between Seoul and Pyongyang. All the communication channels, including the New York channel between Washington and Pyongyang, have been severed. There's no way to manage an incident. There's no way to check intentions. There's no way to convey intentions. The two countries could easily misread each other's intentions and end up in an accidental war. I did not meet Kim Jong-un. My meetings were confined to foreign ministry officials and whoever they might have brought if they were other parts of the bureaucracy rep represented. But I knew that our trip would be reported upward. I was trying to convey as strongly as I can this need to find ways to signal intentions, manage intentions, manage incidents by reopening communications, seize the opportunity of the upcoming Pyeongchang Olympic, uh, Winter Olympics, the General Assembly's resolution calling for an Olympic, Olympic peace. But what I heard back really alarmed me, which was more or less an argument for a North Korean first strike. Again, they did not put it in those terms. They said they would never use their nuclear power except in self-defense, but that because their air defenses were so weak, they acknowledged this, their air defenses would not be able to defeat a sustained U.S. campaign against them. And they knew there was going to be a U.S. campaign against in their narrative. Once they knew the U.S. was about to strike, when the U.S. was prepared to strike, that's when Pyongyang, DPRK, would have to launch just before the U.S. struck, because that was their opportunity before their own weaponry got destroyed. This means that they could be inviting the destruction that their nuclear weapons were supposed to be designed to prevent from happening. So we had many, many discussions about this. In the end, of course, a few weeks later, you had the New Year's speech by Kim Jong-un, which offered an opening to Seoul. You had the decision to reopen the military-to-military -military hotline. You had the decision by North Korea to participate in the Pyeongchang Olympics, you had a defrosting, I would say, or you had, you had the channels of communication reopen. I'm not saying that our trip created that. You know, I simply don't believe that four days, five days of meetings at the beginning of December would lead to a pivot of the DPRK's policies 
by January 1st. What I do believe is that we would have reinforced the arguments in favor of doing these sorts of things, that if there was people who were thinking about should we be trying to reopen the channels to de-escalate tensions, I think we contributed to that. Do you think there's a lesson there for how the UN can act uh, and perform its good offices, even when there's sort of not a formal mandate in place? I think the UN in general is too cautious when it comes to questions of war and peace and and particularly prevention of conflict. There are times when prevention of conflict comes down to some kind of urgent diplomacy, comes down to some kind of engagement with those leaders of groups or countries that have the power to take a country into war or keep it in peace. It's fine in the UN to talk about preventing conflict by the social development, by inclusionary politics. All that is absolutely right and good and does contribute to conflict prevention over the long term. But when you have an immediate risk of war, an immediate risk of country collapse, you can look at what's been happening in recent weeks in Ethiopia, which I find quite worrying, and elsewhere in the Horn of Africa. That's when you have to have a much more aggressive, diplomatic engagement than I think the UN's comfortable in doing. And why is the UN uncomfortable in doing that when its purpose is to prevent war? It's because you're going to cross the instincts of member states. If there's an internal problem inside a member state that those of us on the outside believe has the risk of deteriorating into war, that country doesn't really want outsiders coming in and telling what to do. That country may want an internal military solution. So that country is going to put pressure on the UN not to send in any kind of officials to try to do the conflict prevention that we would all say is logical and necessary. And if that country is, shall we say, not a very strong country, you know, it might find a country on the outside that is stronger. You know, a regional power, a P5 country that then puts the pressure on the UN not to try to do the preventive diplomacy. In some areas, I think the UN has done a, a very good job. I think the regional offices in Central Asia in West Africa and Central Africa have done a good job of conflict prevention because they're on the ground on a continuing basis. But if you're talking about a sudden crisis somewhere and you're deploying Jeff Feltman from New York, you know, the white guy, the American from New York, the host country is probably not going to be thrilled about that. And the Security Council comes into this because the Security Council, of course, has the ultimate responsibility for peace and security matters internationally. But when you call into the Security Council, because the Security Council spotlight, in some cases, works to highlight a problem and can be leverage. In other cases, you kind of want to solve it before it would ever get to the Security Council's attention, because you know that in the Security Council, there's going to be polarization, that there's going to be a different view. So let's try to get this issue resolved in a way that the Security Council, already quite busy with the big agenda, doesn't have to get involved. Let's talk about that tension between the ideals of the UN and the politics of its member states. For example, in the Middle East, um, Martin Griffiths, the UN envoy to Yemen, was in the mediator's studio talking about this recently. How do you see the mediator's role in dealing with this? The special envoys in Yemen have had a particularly difficult task because Resolution 2216, the Security Council adopted in April 2015, I believe, it's a very one-sided resolution that says, Political talks will, you know, can happen after the Houthis turn over all their weapons, return the territory that they've seized, 
abandon all the government facilities that they've taken, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, it's a surrender document. It was passed as a political message. It was the unacceptability of the Houthis to take over the capital of Yemen and much of the territory of Yemen by force when there had been a national dialogue process a couple of years earlier that was supposed to lead to a transition in, in Yemen. So it was a political statement about what had happened on the ground, but it's not a mandate conducive to negotiations. One of the UN's values in mediation is the UN impartiality. And this was anything but an impartial mandate. You don't want to endorse a violent takeover of a country's capital against the recognized government that is represented at the United Nations. So this is, this is a dilemma. But what do you do with this now? The Yemeni government, the official Yemeni government, then in exile in, in Saudi Arabia with some presence on the ground, but not in the capital any longer, is going to look at the special envoy with real suspicion unless that special envoy is constantly referring back to the Security Council Resolution 2216 and the mandate derived from that. So how does the special envoy then deal with the Houthis who actually have control of the capital and much of the, much of the national infrastructure? Because the Houthis are gonna look at this mandate as inherently biased against them, which it is. So Martin Griffiths, as well as uh, Ismail Will Sheikh Ahmed before him, now the Mauritanian foreign minister, had to make special efforts to try to prove that they could be sufficiently impartial that the Houthis would see them as a credible interlocutor. If they overemphasize 2216, then the Houthis won't deal with them. If they underemphasize 2216 within the government of Yemen and its backers become suspicious. I frankly think that the envoys have done a good job in navigating this, but it's an extra burden. I'm also convinced that should Martin Griffiths be able to come up with some sort of, I don't know, power sharing arrangement, whatever, whatever the agreement would be uh, between the warring parties in, in Yemen, I'm sure the Security Council would be thrilled to endorse a new mandate, a new agreement that would supersede 2216. Jeff, although the UN and other mediators make an effort to consult women, creating advisory boards and so on, it, it doesn't always translate to women taking part as negotiators in processes or as signatories to agreements. So beyond the rhetoric of saying women have to be there, what do you think mediators should be doing better? It's a very good question, Adam, and I'm, I'm often bothered by the fact that there's a, there's a certain tokenism that seems to come into it, not necessarily on the UN's part, but on delegations' part, where delegations to peace processes may understand that they need to check the box, but they're not doing it in any sort of substantive way, so that the UN has to be the one that sort of fills the gap. And I think that... In a way, the pandemic that we're all enduring may lead the way to have a more profound engagement with not only women's groups, but other parts of civil society. I look at what's been going on with the Libya Political Dialogue Forum, for example. The Libyan Political Dialogue Forum has representation from, from various civil society, tribal, political groups, etc. But more than that, the UN staff in Libya have been using technology to reach out to a, a, a much larger group of people than can be represented in the actual dialogue. But I think the key is what happens afterwards. Let's say you have, a, you have a peace agreement that you've somehow managed to bring in the input from civil society, from women, et cetera. You can't just clap your hands, celebrate the peace agreement being signed and expect it's gonna be implemented automatically. 
that's where I think that everyone involved in mediation, whether it's UN or private mediators, need to do a better job of making sure that you have women, civil society groups, you know, religious leaders, etc., behind the implementation to keep the public support and basically public monitoring of the agreements that have been reached. Let's talk about America and the events of January 6th when the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. was stormed. As an American and a former U.N. official, do you feel there is something that America should learn from how other countries manage their conflicts, even if they're very different in nature? I think that the, the, that the U.S. would have the same instincts that other countries have, which is, you know, let us solve our own problem. But what happened on January 6th was, was a profound shock, even to those of us that have been quite upset over political developments, the the promotion of falsehoods in the United States over the, over the, the past four years. You know, I've been out of the UN now for more than two and a half years. And so I'm looking at this more as an American citizen than as a UN official at this point. You know, if I were still in the State Department, if I were still representing the United States abroad, I, I think that in a way we might be able to connect more with our foreign hosts in countries that also are going through challenges by acknowledging that we have our own homework to do. I don't think that it's a question of either or. Yes, of course, we have to focus on our on our domestic problems, but those very domestic problems might allow us to have a more empathetic engagement with other countries where we, where we don't come across as arrogant and preachy about we have the only way to do things. I regret terribly what has ha- what culminated on, on January 6th, but it happened. We have to fix our domestic house, but we can also use the fact that we, that we are trying to overcome these challenges in order to build stronger ties with other countries going through challenges. Jeff, and you mentioned at the start that you failed your entry exam to the State Department twice. You know, to our younger listeners who might be hoping to break into diplomacy or mediation, what would you say to them? This is a really rewarding career. Frustrating at times. Sometimes the policies that you represent, there wasn't every, I didn't always agree with everything my government had me advocate, but my job was to advocate for US policy, so I, so I did. Frustrating because of the foreign interlocutors one, one had to deal with at times, the, the sort of the stubbornness, the refusal to see when there was a problem needed to be addressed. So there's a lot of frustrations, but overall it's rewarding. I felt as though I spent my career in, in the best graduate school seminar possible in terms of the education I got from the people I was dealing with. One of the really rewarding aspects of that UN work was sitting at my conference table with my senior staff in the morning to talk about the world's problems and realizing that the world was at the table in terms of the diversity of countries, and perspectives represented at my, at my conference table in the United Nations. It was the world sitting at the table talking about the world's problems. I cannot tell you what a privilege it was to have that experience for six years and then to have the experience of representing my own country in foreign, in foreign countries for the 26 years, years preceding. This career, whether it's UN or national service, is an opportunity to learn, to engage, to be educated, to have your perspectives broaden, and to serve simultaneously. And I wouldn't have traded it for anything despite the frustrations. I think that's the right note to end on, Jeff. Thank you so much for being my guest in the Mediator Studio. 
Adam, thank you very much for the invitation. That was Jeffrey Feltman in the Mediator's Studio. To get new episodes as soon as they're released, make sure you subscribe. The Mediator's Studio team loves hearing your feedback and suggestions. Leave us a review, send an email, osloforum at hdcenter.org, or get in touch with me on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace. The Mediator Studio is an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our managing editor is Christina Buchold, and the show is produced by Christopher Gunnis. Neither peacemaking nor podcasts happen without lots of work behind the scenes. My thanks go to our whole production team in Geneva, Evie Krasner, Rosie Fowler, and Giles Pitts, and in Oslo, Elizabeth Schlattum, Ellen Fadness, and David Jordan. Apologies if you heard a few issues with the sound quality on this episode. That's the perils of producing a podcast from a farmhouse in the US where Jeff is and my kid's bedroom here in Brussels. But I do hope that you'll join us next time in the Mediator Studio. But until then, that's all from me, Adam Cooper. Thank you for listening.